0: Hello, everybody. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but it also has considerable expenses. In order to continue bringing you the in-depth author interviews that you count on, we have to pay our bills. So we'd like you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the network. It's easy to do. Just go to any NBN page and follow the donation link. Since we're part of Amherst College Library, you'll be taken to an Amherst College Library page. Go to the Hello, everybody. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but it also has considerable expenses. In order to continue bringing you the in-depth author interviews that you count on, we have to pay our bills. So we'd like you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the network. It's easy to do. Just go to any NBN page and follow the donation link. Since we're part of Amherst College Library, you'll be taken to an Amherst College Library page. Go to the NBN line on that page and follow the instructions. That's it. From all of us at the network, thanks for your support.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Digital Culture podcast. I'm your host, Tal Zalmanovic. Joining us online from Berkeley, California is Michael Seller, professor in the history department at the University of California, Davis. He is the author of As If, Modern Enchantment and the Literary Prehistory of Virtual Reality, published by Oxford University Press in 2012. The book is an original cultural history that argues that from the 1880s, a growing number of individuals, both in Britain and in the U.S., were enticed by fictional characters such as Sherlock Holmes to communally and persistently inhabit worlds of the imagination. Readers were drawn in particular to a new literary genre, the New Romanticism, that rose in Britain in the 1880s. The genre combined the objective style of realism with the fantastic content of romance. Novels such as Dracula and Treasure Island made the fantastic scene plausible through the use of scientific detail and the inclusion of maps, photographs, and footnotes. Victorian readers had acquired a sophistication that enabled them to immerse themselves in the fiction while keeping an ironic distance from it. Their delight was derived from their awareness to the fiction rather than from being deluded by it. In addition to a theoretical framework, Seller provides an in-depth and enjoyable exploration of the work of authors that dominated the genre and of the communities they inspired. Three chapters explain contemporary fascination with the novels of Arthur Conan Doyle, H.P. Lovecraft, and J.R.R. Tolkien. The chapters also elaborate the important role of readers in sustaining these authors' success. Finally, Seller offers a defense against labeling the engagement with the imaginary world as escapism. He argues that the imagined world should be valued as safe havens to reflect on the real world and consider social and cultural change, a space to practice empathy and tolerance that teaches us to think of the world, not in just so terms, but through the more forgiving as-if perspective. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Well,
2: thanks for having me.
1: Um, I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself.
2: I uh, went to graduate school uh, in the late 80s and early 90s and um, was really interested in um, notions of the imagination, historical notions of the imagination. And so my first book was on um, the avant-garde in uh, a very unlikely place for the avant-garde to be, um, that is Britain, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. And uh, that became the avant-garde in interwar England, uh, medieval modernism in the London Underground, and I think I've continued to explore uh, this interest in the imagination, um, in particularly in terms of the idea of modern disenchantment and reenchantment, and from that uh, general question uh, of whether we are disenchanted or. Enchanted or re enchanted in modernity, uh, this new book as if uh, uh, is a kind of another leg to the project. I was uh, doing uh, some work on the whole question of uh, modern disenchantment in the 1990s, and this was a time when. Um, disenchantment had long been part of the academic understanding of modernity, at least Western modernity. Um, But in the 1990s, scholars began to question it. Um, And so I was looking into notions of whether modernity was either enchanted or re-enchanted, the ways that might uh, uh, hold true. And uh, I got interested in Sherlock Holmes uh, in terms of answering this question, uh, because Holmes' case is very interesting. Um, You have uh, many people complaining that Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of, of this very rational detective, himself was interested in spiritualism and most notably fairies, I think, or most embarrassingly fairies, uh, in uh, the years after the First World War. Um, he famously wrote about fairies, uh, arguing that they actually existed. And so people began to complain and, and they couldn't understand why this very, uh, Uh, This author, this very rational detective himself, was seemingly so irrational. But at the same time, they were actively believing in a fictional character, Sherlock Holmes. And that seemed to be a conundrum. So I wanted to kind of explore why this was and what it might, what this uh, apparent uh, paradox might mean. So I wrote an essay um, on Sherlock Holmes and modern enchantment. And from there, I thought, well, this could be developed further. I actually can talk more and more about the turn to imaginary worlds in the late 19th century, uh, and how they were also instantiations of a particularly modern form of enchantment, uh, and use, use imaginary worlds as a perspective or touchstone to talk more widely about what modern enchantment might mean.
1: Okay, so maybe this is a good point to to talk about modern enchantment because it's already in the title of the book and, you know, in in your opening um, comments. So would you care to define it or at least how you understand it? Sure,
2: yeah. Well, I think in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century, uh, many um, social scientists uh, and, of course, most notably Max Weber, who uh, actually discussed modern uh, enchantment, disenchantment or modernity as disenchanted uh they tended to be cultural pessimists and they really did believe that modernity uh had moved into uh a form of, of, of what they call disenchantment, uh, which was positive and it was negative. It was kind of, um, uh, an ambivalent situation, uh, for Weber, uh, what he meant by disenchantment was that we had sort of lost the spiritual meanings and, and communal moral purposes that a religious worldview had traditionally brought to the world, uh, that in the course of, of Western science and Western capitalism, um, uh, Religion had sort of dropped out of the world, and now we were just using reason. Uh, Everything was open to quantification, and reason was a good thing for Weber in many ways. But uh, when taken too narrowly, without any kind of wider purposes or meanings, uh, it could lead to a very desiccated and uh, unhappy form of existence for the the people, in a sense, for, for those of us who are part of this whole modern structure uh, and leaving us open to look for other meanings, um, which uh, could open us up to the siren, uh, uh, calls of, of charismatic figures, um, and of course it did uh, in the 1920s and 1930s, particularly in terms of fascism, uh, which Weber in some ways foresaw. Um, so uh, the notion that modernity is inherently disenchanted because of modern instrumental reason uh, became a, a cliché, a kind of accepted nostrum to define modernity uh, within the academy uh, among social scientists and historians, which um, really through... I would say, the 1970s, the 1980s, when it began to be challenged. Um, and I wanted—I I knew myself from um, studying late 19th century historical figures as well as reading lots of literature, that there were lots of forms of enchantment out there that were actually compatible with reason. It wasn't the kind of binary opposition between reason and the imagination uh, that the social scientists had posited, it seemed that people were perfectly able to bring together reason and the imagination, uh, enchantment and disenchantment at the same time. So, uh, sort of exploring further uh, the actual uh, writings, texts, debates of the historical period, I found that uh, there was a form of, a specifically modern form of enchantment that was taking place exactly at the time that Weber and others were writing. And this form of enchantment is actually a disenchanted enchantment. That is, it's a double-minded attitude towards enchantment. People can retain illusions and fantasies Uh, with a double-minded awareness that they are fantasies, they're self-conscious illusions. Um, And thus they can uh, remain delighted about the world, uh, but not deluded about the world. Or at least that's the ideal. That's the ideal. Mm -hmm. Um, And this ideal of course was being promoted by writers uh other uh philosophers at the same time that Weber had been writing uh it's just that they tend to be uh, neglected when people talk about modern disenchantment uh people don't really talk about Nietzsche they don't really talk about William James and pragmatism uh and and other philosophers um these philosophers are seen to be sort of um marginal to the modern project but they're very much part of the modern project um they seem to be precursors for many of postmodernism, but if we look at them as being uh, in dialogue with this alleged modern project of reason, um, then we see that that uh, what is quintessentially postmodern has actually been going on within modernity itself. It was just kind of emergent; it was uh, on its way to being uh, fully expressed after the Second World War. But it certainly was a part of the whole cultural discussion.
1: What was the role of irony in facilitating modern enchantment?
2: was full of irony. The works of Gustave Flaubert, the Esthetes, Oscar Wilde, etc., it's full of irony. Um, But if you actually look at mass culture as well in the late 19th century, uh, which is assumed to be uh, rather banal and not very sophisticated, mass culture very often is full of irony as well in the late 19th century. Uh, And indeed, if you actually look at um, the 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 use of of irony in the various arts in the course of the 19th century, you find an interesting change. You find a kind of turn from, let's call it a more sincere, uh, an emphasis on Victorian sincerity in the early, say, 19th century, late 18th, early 19th century, and then a kind of gradual shift to more and more ironic expressions within the wider culture uh, in the course of the 19th century. Um, And this has to do with many different Cultural and political, economic, social factors. You know, you can talk about, in terms of culture, obviously, you can talk about rising currents of secularism that challenge this very religious, uh, sincere attitude towards the world. You can talk about the rise of mass advertising and mass culture, which kind of inculcated in people's minds a more ironic perspective on everyday representations. Um, uh, people become much more adept at kind of spotting, um, um, you know, uh, uh, the kind of creative notion of, of, of reality around them. Um, uh, you find in, in in popular works of fiction a lot of intertextual allusions um, and, and ironic um, uh, footnotes that kind of undermine the whole structure of the text, uh, you know, in works that are ordinarily seen to be rather univocal and, um, uh, you know... Um, uh, not at all complex in, in some ways, like H. Rider Haggard's She, which is often seen to be a kind of triumphant, uh, uh, to into imperialism, but it's a quite ironic, uh, uh, and self undermining text, uh, etc. I, I guess what, what I'm saying is in the course of the 19th century, what Uh, there is a shift from what might be called a kind of Victorian sincere imagination to uh, a late Victorian uh, early Edwardian ironic imagination um, in which this double-minded consciousness of uh, uh, a kind of disenchanted enchantment can really be exercised and practiced. Uh, So um, that, that, uh, uh, yes,
1: could you give an example of that? What does it mean to be in a state of um kind of ironic double mindedness right, right, as, as a reader. What? <laughs>
2: As a reader, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I I can kind of give two examples um, from the times uh, that I'm talking about. Uh, So if we turn to the early 19th century uh, with this notion of sincerity, um, Coleridge famously in 1817 talked about the willing suspension of disbelief. This is how one has an attitude towards the – Poetic fantasy, um, that one kind of starts with an initial attitude towards fantasy and the imagination of disbelief. And then one brackets it, one suspends it, one has a willing suspension of disbelief. You kind of set your rational mind, uh, aside for the time being, and then you're able to entertain, uh, poetic fantasy. Um, but the default, of course, is, uh, rationality that has to be suspended. Um, Now, in the 1930s, looking back over uh, the 19th century, Tolkien began to question, J.R. Tolkien began to question Coleridge's whole notion of how one experiences fantasy. Uh, He says it's not the willing suspension of disbelief, but rather the active willing of belief with a double-minded awareness that you're engaging in pretense. Uh, So Tolkien said that when you're immersed in a fantasy world, you're not grudgingly um, uh, sort of immersed in it or living in it. Uh, no one would do that. Instead, you actually are in that world, but at the same time, you're perfectly aware that it is a construct um he had a nice example about how when he's sitting there reading a fantasy work that that has totally enraptured him uh in his study he's at the same time aware of the the fire in the hearth and the cat <laughs> on the rug um you know he's he's always aware that this is a fantasy but at the same time he can be actively engaged in it um uh and i think that's probably a, a kind of um Orientation towards fantasy and fiction that is culturally trained, people are culturally trained to do this. Um, And so, in a sense, over the course of the 19th century, the more openness to fantasy, to the imagination, and to irony uh, enabled people to actually accept uh, 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 this sort of idea of disenchanted enchantment uh, to a greater extent.
1: Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you about the moment in time in which you start your your book and that's the 1880s that you were referring to that there's a shift there's a kind of a, an acceptance of imagining um in a different way than it, you know has been ex- acceptable before um could you explain why at that time what happens
2: Right all right well of course any number of things have happened before uh, this particular time and again I think these are you know important so uh, secularism, more, a greater degree of kind of, uh, 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 uh criticism of traditional, uh, Judeo-religious beliefs, uh, kind of more openness to alternative modes of explanation, um, uh, is one particular a- a element. The rise of mass culture, um, actually in the late 19th century. So, and, and of course, a greater degree of literacy. So more and more people are able to read, and now there's more and more imaginative material available for them to read, um, uh, that leads them to, uh, sort of trains them to to look at fiction in a particular way uh, is also very important. Um, and then um, there are other currents uh, that are important here. This discourse of disenchantment that I talked about is widespread among intellectuals. I don't think it's necessarily uh, trickling down to the mass public at, at large, uh, uh, but it's certainly widespread among intellectuals. And so you have a turn um, in, in high culture to realist forms of narrative, um, which are highly detailed about ordinary everyday life and rather pessimistic mystic uh, about ordinary everyday life. And so among elite readers, certainly you get a kind of greater craving for fantasy, I think, um, for a desire actually to exercise their imaginations and think about other worlds. And so beginning in the 1880s and the 1890s, you see a turn to, for the first time really, um, the creation of particular types of fantastic worlds um, that uh, both combine, uh, well, let me, let me Backtrack a a step here. What do I mean by a new type of of fantastic world? What I mean by that is an autonomous fantastic world that exists in its own right as if it really did exist and could be historically mapped. So it's not just autonomous, it is highly realistic, full of details. This is the beginnings of the use of uh, maps and uh, photographs and um, chronologies and glossaries, uh, everything that we think about in terms of The Lord of the Rings was beginning to be practiced in fantasy fiction in the late 1880s or in the 1880s and in the 1890s. Um, So it's autonomous in the respect of its realism, which these works are borrowing from literary realism. It's also autonomous in terms of another current that's very important uh, in the shift um, from a sincere to an ironic imagination, uh, and that is aestheticism. So in the late – or in the 1880s and the 1890s too, you have the aesthetes who are talking about art as being separate from the earlier moral and utilitarian concerns of the Victorians uh, existing in its own right uh, in which the imagination can kind of – Inhabit uh, aesthetic and aesthetic sphere and experience aesthetic emotions. Um, the new fantasy fiction of the 1880s and 1890s similarly, uh, set their worlds as completely autonomous from social and moral, uh, uh, concerns. Um, these worlds exist, uh, without any kind of overt Uh, moral, um, uh, or utilitarian purpose. It's not to say that they don't, you can't read the, read it into them. Of course, the writers are products of their own time and they're deeply implicated in many of the, the major, you know, social and intellectual questions of the day, but nevertheless, they're meant to be autonomous. They're not meant to convey an overt moral or allegory as earlier works of fantasy did. Um, so, um, and, and, of course, uh, yet another current to bring in here. It's complex, and I think my book actually uh, lays this out hopefully more programmatically and coherently than I'm doing now. But, but um, uh, again, new forms of, of reproduction um, that enable uh, the use, again, of, of photographs and, and highly realistic forms of illustration that, that assist in, in creating in the imagination of, of readers the idea that these worlds actually do exist um, as much as anything that you might read in a contemporary magazine about an imperial exploration uh, into another continent, Um, all of these currents come together in the the late 19th century um, that for the first time uh, have worlds in which rational adults can actually inhabit for prolonged periods of time in a communal fashion. Uh, and this is where – this, I think, is is, is the key shift um, uh, to um, this kind of notion of uh, delight without delusion, uh, disenchanted enchantment. Um, uh, we have not just children but adults who are uh, provided with alternate worlds in which they can live uh, and think about uh, uh, that uh, in a sense are totally autonomous from – from the social and 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 utilitarian concerns of other uh, forms of art, um, it's very different. It's a very different uh, way of approaching um, uh, uh, the imagination and creative productions than what you had seen uh, earlier.
1: I, I think it was um, very interesting the way you uh, define it in the book. That the kind of the two main kind of points is this communal and persistence inhabiting of the imagined world, and I think um, as you we're Describing before, it's not only the act of the individual reader that might think about these worlds as being um, kind of autonomous and you know outside themselves, but also the discussion with others and the ability to to kind of imagine as a community uh, the existence of these these worlds
2: right right yes uh and these two um this, this ability to um communicate with other people and discuss these worlds thereby making these worlds even more real in the minds of readers is a late uh 19th century invention we're really talking about the creation of fan culture uh in the late 19th yeah. century and again how did this happen well You've got these worlds, uh, these these kind of spectacular texts full of photographs, maps, footnotes that enhance imaginative immersion in these worlds, which, of course, are highly detailed and realistic, quote-unquote, even though they're fantastic. Then you get um, another set of innovations – Something that I call in the book, um, public spheres of the imagination. What are those? Well, basically, you get new fiction magazines, uh, in the late 19th century, particularly, uh, my, my case examples come from largely, uh, Great Britain and North America. Uh, and, uh, in both, uh, Great Britain and North America, you get new f- magazines devoted to fiction. Uh, the magazines usually include, uh, letters pages, uh, to the editor. <laughs> Uh, and this, these initially arose, um, so that, uh, editors could figure out what their public liked. So they, they could supply, uh, uh, readers with that. Um, but gradually, um, editors began to realize that readers loved these discussions. Uh, and so they, they, they devoted more space to the letters. Um, and readers, both were able to talk about the fiction as fiction as something that is constructed. So again, this is conducive to looking uh, at these things as aesthetic creations. That's part of this rational uh, understanding of fantasy, while still still being immersed in it. But in a secondary way, the discussions of the um, the fictions themselves began to morph into discussions of the real world. Um, um, and
1: uh, and the yeah. w- real world you mean
2: the The primary world that is the the world that we all inhabit, <laughs> okay. not the fantasy world, but the actual world. Um, so what you're getting here is two. You're really getting two kind of interesting effects. On the one hand, you're getting an increased immersion into the fantasy world simply through people discussing the fantasy world as fantasy world, and this is what I mean by. Um, prolonged and communal inhabit, uh, habitation. That readers, uh, adult readers largely, uh, are actually living, literally living in this world, thinking about it 24 um, 7, whenever they want to, that is, uh, and in a sense, prolonging its life. It exists outside of the book itself. It's taken on a virtual reality. Um, so, this is why I call my book The Literary Prehistory of Virtual Reality. These worlds now um, transcend the aims of their author, uh, transcends any particular single reading of the book, they're now available for everybody to continue to uh, discuss and elaborate, etc. So people are literally living in the imagination as a result of public spheres of the imagination. As I said, it starts in letters pages by the 1930s. It, it, it branches out into all other sorts of other forms. Um, uh, you get fanzines, for example, in science fiction fandom. Uh, you get clubs. You get conventions uh, dedicated to kind of elaborating these worlds. Uh, similarly, in mis- mystery fiction, Sherlock Holmes is a good example. Um, Sherlock Holmes' fandom began in the early, well, really in the late 19th century, early 20th century. But again, in the 1930s, you see the creation of Sherlock Holmes societies in both North America and Great Britain. So on the one hand, you get uh, autonomous virtual worlds being created in which people can live in uh, together uh, for prolonged periods. But on the other hand, you also get a kind of... Um, social uh, turn to these worlds and that is they're used as touchstones um, to discuss the real world. Um, So issues that are contentious and um, uh, controversial that you're not supposed to talk about in bars because you can get into a fight um, actually are able to be approached in a more distanced and um, maybe a a constructive way when you talk about them in terms of fantasy worlds. Uh, So Uh, If you're talking about Sherlock Holmes and you want to start asking yourself, you know, where are women in this world? Aside from Irene Adler, uh, what's the role of gender here? Uh, Or if you want to start talking about Middle Earth in terms of its capitalist uh, mode of production, et cetera, um, you can can kind of use the world to talk about what's going on currently uh, and explore questions of race, gender, uh, et cetera. Um, So that's the second turn that Mm -hmm. happens with these imaginary worlds.
1: Part of your um, kind of your primary sources is these uh, uh, literary magazines, and especially those uh, letter pages. And I thought it was very interesting you described at some point where um, people move from discussing topics on the pages of the magazine to actually directly um, contact each other. Since the kind of the their address is usually printed together with the letter, it's actually possible to write to another person and and continue the conversation.
2: Yes, Yes, that's right. This um, really happens uh, in the late 1920s, early 1930s. So while letters are being printed earlier, um, the addresses aren't being included. Um, nevertheless, readers still get together with one another, uh, find ways to do this. The, uh, so I, I would argue that the first public sphere of the imagination and the first virtual reality character uh, all had to do with Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and, and, and that fandom really began in the 1890s, early um, 20th century. Even though the addresses weren't being published, uh, undergraduates at Cambridge and at Oxford um, would write to university magazines And and they knew each other. So they were able to come together and discuss this. Um, But... Where you get, uh, the flourishing of fan communities as a result of the publication of addresses, which takes, uh, the world out of the hands of the editors more fully, I think, uh, is in science fiction, uh, uh, magazines. In the late 1920s in America, the first science, the first magazine devoted purely to science fiction, Amazing Stories. Uh, in fact, the term science fiction was coined by the editor of Amazing Stories, Hugo Gernsback. It was an amazing story, in Amazing Stories and some of Gernsback's other, Gernsback's other magazines, uh, that back began to publish the addresses of, of readers they did contact one another uh, across the country in fact this was you know in North America um, and from that they began to uh, collaborate on fan magazines uh, the first fanzine I believe uh, appeared in 1930 um, and from the fan magazines they began to meet in clubs both local and national. Uh, And in fact, by the late 1930s, you get national conventions. 1939 was the first world science fiction convention. Um, And so here you have, you know, uh, a kind of forerunner of our own internet world uh, of blogs, web pages, ongoing discussion groups uh, where many minds are coming together to elaborate on fantasy worlds. Um, And similarly with Sherlock Holmes fandom, as I said, um, the first Sherlock Holmes organizations uh, emerged also in the 1930s. So this is a process that's going on, and it's really the 1930s where um, things become fully institutionalized, alongside a lot of other imaginary activity in terms of belief in fantasy worlds and figures, uh, most notably, I think, uh, the rise of movie stars. Uh, of course, you get uh, movie fan magazines being published, um, very much um, you know aided in the Embedded uh, by Hollywood publicists and studios, uh, to create the fantasy of the movie star. So, uh, this turn to living in the imagination, uh, is of course very much, uh, part of, of new media, new media technologies, not just, um, new forms of printing in the late 19th century, of course, but, uh, uh, communicative technologies like radio and film, um, which have a much greater purchase in the interwar period.
1: So it's fascinating, um, I want us to turn back to Sherlock Holmes because he's been popping up so much in this uh, conversation. <laughs> um, you termed him, as you said before, the first uh, kind of virtual reality character in fiction, maybe the first celebrity kind of uh, figure. So what do you think made him and um, kind of stand up so much and, and create these kind of uh, reactions from readers?
2: Right. It's a really interesting question. Um, Holmes did not get this reaction in terms of his first two published, uh, Really, novels uh, in uh, the 1880s. It wasn't until short stories that Conan Doyle wrote were serialized in the Strand Magazine in the 1890s that you see the the mass interest in Sherlock Holmes. Now, there are a lot of reasons for why Sherlock Holmes is a memorable character. Uh, I mean, uh, we can't deny that Arthur Conan Doyle was really a brilliant writer um, in terms of characterization, in terms of clarity. um, But there are other specific things that are going on that are common to other imaginary worlds that I think are hooks to people in their imagination. That is, in the short stories, uh, Watson is constantly referring to cases that uh, he hasn't written about. And so that provides space for people to start imagining what this world, uh, other aspects of this world that haven't been uh, defined are. They start to participate with their own imaginations. That's a kind of lure, a fatal attraction in some ways, for people to kind of want to elaborate these possible cases on their own. So, that's a hook certainly and 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 Doyle was one of the first to do this um, in fact, he was the first to do as he said create a kind of cohesive world that is also portioned out in individual stories where you can you, you can the, the stories are freestanding. you don 't have to read them as you do a serial installment, uh, all of them together. You can only read one or two of them, but nevertheless, they are a kind of part of a much wider world and 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 I think you know in terms of just people being attracted to imaginary worlds, this idea that there is this wider world uh, that you can kind of help to create yourself uh, because the author hasn 't provided all the information. Uh, Is very important, but be that as it may. I mean, these are these are innovations, Um, and of course, you know, Conan Doyle also, and he didn't do this deliberately. But there were all sorts of contradictions in the stories. He was writing them very quickly. You know, was 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 Watson shot in the leg or was he shot in the shoulder? The stories stories have these 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 uh, uh, conflicts, but readers began to wonder. Well, maybe this is deliberate. I mean, you know, maybe we too are meant to kind of be like Sherlock Holmes and solve the mysteries within the stories that the author isn't even addressing. And this segues into why Sherlock Holmes was really so popular. Uh, All these others are kind of secondary reasons. But really, why do people turn to Sherlock Holmes? Because Sherlock Holmes in an age of disenchantment, in which allegedly reason had disenchanted the world, and reason was this kind of dry, desiccated form approach, uh, it's a form of instrumental rationality, it's all about uh, quantification, uh, um, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a kind of putting us in an iron cage as, of reason, as, as, as Max Faber said. Well, Sherlock Holmes practiced reason, and he showed that reason could be magic. That, that all of us, in a sense, are rational beings, but when you use your reason as Sherlock Holmes uses it, the world becomes enchanting. It becomes a place of mystery and wonder, where every detail is a potential clue that can solve a, a, an invisible and underlying story. And In a sense, we can all be Sherlock Holmes. Of course, he's He's beyond, beyond, you know, uh, uh, comparison, you know, in that sense. But he's always telling Watson, you know, Watson stands in for the rest of us. He said, Watson, if you only observe more carefully, if you only uh, looked at the world as I do, some of this would be possible for you. And indeed, at times, Watson, in, in his discourses with Sherlock Holmes, Holmes is basically training him. Watson doesn't do such a bad job. Um, and readers themselves... We were encouraged to be Holmes in trying to both solve the cases as, uh, as they read the story, because allegedly Doyle included enough clues that the reader too could figure out the solution. Um, but more importantly, I think, to use the orientation of Holmes towards reason in their own lives. Uh, now, just to go one step further and, and make this uh, a little more concrete, Holmes said that his form of reason was allied to the imagination. He called it. The scientific use of the imagination. And again, this is something that the discourse of disenchantment had disregarded. It had set imagination as the opposite of reason, and indeed as subordinate to reason, which is very, you know, very much a part of Western culture um, that's very Mm -hmm. traditional. Um, And the idea that reason and the imagination don't work together is um, illustrated by the kind of um, but now police officers who compete with Sherlock Holmes. Inspector Lestrade, of course, is never using imagination alongside with his reason. He's only seeing the immediate, the obvious. He's quantifying. He's not using um, a kind of thinking uh, uh, outside of the box and in- intuitive bringing together of all sorts of clues into a new configuration. That's what Sherlock Holmes does. He uses the scientific use of the imagination. And so really what, what he did, Sherlock Holmes did was he brought together these two um, very important faculties that we have that had been artificially sundered and separated. And for middle-class professionals, who knew perfectly well that they were using reason and the imagination in their own daily lives, the idea that this could be done openly, explicitly, that in the sense the imagination is just as important as reason and works together with reason, I think was liberating, absolutely liberating. Um, uh, and uh, I think that's why Sherlock Holmes for our modern world is an iconic figure and why we continue to turn to him today.
1: I like your um, reading of Doyle as stretching the definition of reason to include the imagination. And I also thought it's interesting that um, Doyle included a democratic promise to Holmes' methods, although Holmes himself is clearly such a privileged character. Um, This results, I think, in a... um, In conflicts and contradictions, both in the character and in Doyle himself, as you uh, mentioned before, that Doyle himself was quite suspicious of modernity's definitions of reasons and was a spiritualist man. Can you say more about that?
2: Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Yes, that's the interesting thing. You're absolutely right. I mean, Doyle himself lived this problem of a disenchanted modernity. Uh, He had been trained as a a medical doctor, uh, a rationalist on the one hand, and yet he had grown up as a Catholic and and trained in Jesuit schools. Um, And while... Uh, you know, his mother tended to be, you know, more secular in her orientation. Nevertheless, he had this background of Catholicism. He had this background from his Jesuit schools. He rebelled against it. He became an arch-rationalist in some ways, but that wasn't sufficient for him. Um, he always felt that there were wider meanings in the world, and he, he felt that science wasn't uh, capable of addressing these um, why questions as opposed to the how questions. And so from a fairly early point in his own life, Doyle began to explore spiritualism, psychic research, the occult for that matter. None of it. Satisfied his reason. And that was very important to him that uh, any kind of um, spiritual view or spiritual claim to reality had in some ways to have a rational component. He too needed to integrate reason and the imagination, reason and spirituality. Um, uh, And so he was always searching for this in a way that Sherlock Holmes does i mean doyle kind of claimed he didn't like sherlock holmes because he was kind of this autistic arch rationalist um on uh, human calculating machine but that's not true i mean you see that in the stories it's not true um conan i mean sherlock holmes also expresses the kind <laughs> of ennui and despair of living in a kind of modern world that doesn't offer us um uh, wider sources of 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 challenge and meaning um and that's why he resorts to drugs um in a sense it's not until a new case comes into his life that suddenly re the world and makes everything mysterious that he comes alive and he doesn't even need the drugs but otherwise he's living a life of ennui and, and quiet despair uh which was sort of i think similar to the private life of, of conan doyle um it's not really until the First World War where Doyle, of course, lost his brother, uh, uh, lost his son um, right at the end of the war, um, lost a nephew, lost so many people in his own life that, that in a sense I think the pressure just built up and, and that very careful balance of reason and uh, spirituality that Doyle was always trying to juggle broke down and he just made a firm commitment – uh, to spiritualism, which in a sense, uh, negated reason. Um, at that point, I think he just made that leap, um, and never looked back. He constantly claimed that his belief in, 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 um, spirits, ghosts, and fairies was all very rational and all very, all supported by evidence. Uh, as everybody else pointed out, it wasn't. And that's simply because, um, he couldn't stand the tension anymore at that stage of his life. He was also elderly, facing death himself. But um, but 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 Sherlock Holmes does maintain that that tension, and for both people who are spiritually oriented, religiously oriented, there's a lot. Well, there's not a lot, but there's some indication in the Holmes stories that Sherlock Holmes himself believes in a higher creator or a higher purpose um there's at one point in one of the stories um maybe the naval treaty i'm not remembering the title but he kind of there's a digression where where sherlock holmes looks at a rose and he said isn't this amazing the fact that this 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 flower exists and has no higher purpose than to be beautiful uh that actually suggests that, in a sense, there are higher purposes in the world than our own kind of very narrow utilitarian calculating uh, orientation to the world. The rose is a sign uh, that there may be uh, some sort of higher purpose. Um, so for religiously oriented or spiritually oriented people – Sherlock Holmes as a rationalist is not a problem. And for secular secularly oriented people, of course, Sherlock Holmes is a wonderful role model because he never he's an agnostic. He he doesn't necessarily he doesn't he doesn't embrace um, uh, things that don't actually um, uh, have evidentiary support. Um, What he has is. Uh, it's a term I use in the book, uh, animistic reason. He has a form of reason that actually brings the world alive. It's the form of reason that scientists use. Um, at the same time that the Holmes stories were coming out, Einstein, of course, was making various pronouncements in the early 1900s and throughout his life that as a scientist, he really believed in the imagination. Um, and, uh, he engaged in thought experiments. Um, uh, he wasn't a pure positivist. Um, so, uh, Sherlock Holmes, I think, um, fulfills a lot of our modern needs and is a kind of exemplary, uh, 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 instance of a turn away from strictly positivist orientation, uh, to the world in, in science itself.
1: One of the interesting interventions that you make in the book is that you read the uh, immersion in imaginary worlds not as a form of escapism, but as a social act. Could you say something more about that?
2: Sure, yeah. Um, Well, first, again... um, This gets us back to the whole issue of the imagination in Western culture, this kind of notion that it's pure escapism and you're immature, you're you're a perpetual adolescent, if not worse, if you continue to read fantasy into adulthood. I mean, this was widespread uh, in the 19th and the 20th century. Uh, I've been making throughout uh, this interview with you a case for how everybody's reading fantasy and living in it as adults. Blah blah blah. Well, this is this is actually fairly you know it's a marginal activity uh, still in the 19th and and for much of the 20th century it's it's an emergent activity. I think today it's a dominant activity, but for most of the period that we're talking about it's it's still emergent, and that is because precisely because of this very um, uh, 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 you know restrictive attitude towards the imagination. It's subordinate to reason. Uh, if you unleash Shit. uh it's dangerous um, this was particularly true in the uh, uh, this belief was particularly true in the late 18th and early 19th centuries uh, a highly religious period in, in western culture and in certainly in Britain, Europe for that matter and North America uh, the idea that if you unleash the imagination you're opening yourself up to ungodly desires so you want to really restrict this and pay attention to both the real world because God enjoins you to work in the real world and the next world um, um, and and, uh, uh, and and what happens, though, as I said, as a result of more secular currents in the course of the 19th century, uh, as a result of more technological means to indulge the imagination, uh, the mass magazines, radio, film, uh, as a, an awareness, too, that, in a sense, the world is an imaginative an imaginary construction this comes up through mass advertising in the late 19th century where people are forced to kind of confront all of these representations that are trying to persuade them of different things and understanding no these are just constructions anyway as a result of all of this we start to see shifts in attitudes towards fantasy and the imagination uh more broadly so anyway i just wanted to kind of lay that out there um talk about how the imagination actually becomes uh uh, not subordinate to reason but by after the second world war i think uh, really compatible with uh on the same on a par with reason okay So we'll just leave that there. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I guess I I just want to kind of say that when we talk about modernity, we often kind of list a set of characteristics of modernity. Uh, And I think it's very interesting that the imagination is not one of them, right? So we talk about secularism, we talk about uh, science, we talk about urbanism, we talk about industrialism, we talk about democratization, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at any of these lists, you never find the unleashing of the imagination, and that's exactly what happens in modernity. It begins with the romantics. Uh, and by our wow. present period, by today, the romantics have won uh, in many respects. So I think the imagination is a key category of modernity. That's got to be um, really um, upheld and, and understood. So I haven't answered your question, but now I will.
1: <laughs> now I will.
2: How does it become social? How does this turn the imagination become social by these fantasy geeks of the late 18th, late nineteenth century? All right, social it's, and kind
1: of productive
2: for society, and productive mm-hmm. for society. That's <laughs> that right, because we never we never leave that. We never mm-hmm. leave our orientations, our Protestant work ethic. We never leave a Protestant work ethic behind. Right. Um, Well, it comes to these public spheres of the imagination that we talked about. So we kind of talked about how people now are able to talk with one another uh, about these imaginary worlds. A couple things happen here. Now, first of all, um, when people talk about these worlds uh, with other people, a lot of their own preconceptions – um, biases, prejudices, you know, things they're not even aware of can be, not always are, but can be called into question by other readers, uh, in these public spheres of the imagination. Uh, so I think on the one hand, that's very useful, uh, because it's a way of kind of reminding us that so much of our, of our world is, Phenomenological and constructed, and simply by having these debates about how the worlds work, uh, we're more aware ourselves of how we view the world uh, through uh, a whole set of lenses that we might want to question. All right. Second, um, the, as I said, w- when people talk about these worlds, f- just ineluctably, they start to, to relate them to the real world and they start to debate questions that concern the real world um in terms of these secondary worlds these these fantasy worlds um so questions of gender questions of imperialism uh questions of race uh, that's a big one uh, uh definitely um all sorts of questions start to be real social questions start to be um uh discussed within these public spheres of the imagination and actually debates arise uh about the real world uh and about Political uh, ways to intervene in the real world that have started as kind of more or less innocuous questions uh, about why there are kings in Gondor or what have you, uh, whether you know, and and whether the, the shire is truly democratic, etc. Um, so, in a sense, these become fantasy worlds become safe spaces through which we can actually articulate and negotiate uh, uh, policies uh, and, and ideas about the real world. And then another uh, important result of these sorts of discussions is it socializes members of the public spheres of the imagination. it reminds them that the real world is in many ways a social construction, uh, just as the fantasy world is. So I see these fantasy worlds as kind of undoing essentialist attitudes towards the real world, particularly in the late eighth and 19th and early 20th century, um, essentialist notions about the nation. Um, We all know today from Benedict Anderson that in many ways the nation is a, you know, imagined community. Um, But this would not have surprised uh, uh, members of public spheres of the imagination when they're talking about fantasy worlds, because they, too, through their own discussions about the constructed nature of the secondary world, start to see or, or you know, actually be, see more uh, clearly and, and more uh, consistently that the real world, the primary world, is also uh, con- largely, uh, not entirely, of course, uh, but largely a constructed uh, 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 medium um, through which, which can be reinvented and rethought. Um, uh, and so, in a sense, I find secondary worlds to be absolutely vital uh, in some ways to thinking outside of the box about the real world. And there are numerous instances of... Fans claiming, at least, that uh, their interactions with others in public spheres of the imagination uh, when they discuss secondary worlds have led them to act and intervene in the real world. One of my favorites is um, in some fanzines um, about Tolkien's Middle Earth. Uh, that some uh, readers uh, who had lived in uh, the former Soviet Union uh, talked about how when they were living uh, uh, there uh, during uh, Yeltsin's attempted coup, in, I believe it was 1991, um, these Tolkien fans ran out, thinking of themselves as fighting against Mordor, uh, the reimposition of of, of of kind of totalitarian rule by by generals. Uh, they went out to defend um, Yeltsin, uh, and they thought they that their model was the the, um, the 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 hobbits in the Shire, putting up ba- uh, barrows and 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 various. Uh, 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 you know, ways to keep out uh, uh, those who are coming in to scour the shire. So um, anyway, I I think there are many different ways in which fantasy was concretely, tactically uh, uh, and pragmatically used uh, in terms of negotiating uh, the real world.
1: So um, kind of as a last question, I can't... uh I'm tempted to ask if part of this research is motivated by you being a fan of imagined worlds.
2: <laughs> I hate them. Um, <laughs> this was purely a research project. Far too long. I just had to read fantasy novels night after night, day after day. Uh, no wonder it took me so long. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I really wrote this book um, more as a kind of. Uh, I mean, in some ways I wrote this book because I was just so tired of this kind of blanket to I mean, it's, it's less common now, of course, but growing up, this blanket dismissal of fantasy is purely escapist. When I knew perfectly well, it wasn't. And through my own, I mean, yes, I am a fan, and through my own fan activities uh, as a teenager and as, in, into adulthood, um, I was well aware of, of these practices going on. And um, so when I went back and was intrigued to see how earlier readers had, had uh, approached these worlds, um, they approached them in many ways you know in, in different ways, but there were resonances um, there were you know there 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 are links um, I don't think i'm I'm reading uh, the past in light of the present uh, actually I, I think these things actually did exist and it does come very much from my own um, personal you know uh, uh, as most most scholarship indeed does uh, come from our, our, our own desires and and, and beliefs and, and loves so yes uh um I I think this was very important. Um, uh, And now I can go and and do a kind of more sober um, and traditional work of British political history. British historians will will then read.
1: (laughs) Michael, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed
2: it. Great. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you.